Hi everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters, a podcast about blood cancer from Leukemia Care. For Blood Cancer Awareness Month 2019, we spoke to the three well-known faces about their experiences with leukemia and about their thoughts on our Spot Leukemia campaign. I chatted to Professor Dame Sally Davis. Professor Davis is the outgoing Chief Medical Officer. She's also had a lot of other achievements in her life which you can find out more about by listening to the podcast. In addition to her many career achievements, she has also had personal experience of leukaemia as her husband was diagnosed in the 80s. Okay, so thank you so much for your time. Um, I just wanted to briefly start by talking about your professional connection to haematology. Um, I saw you talk at um, the British Society of Haematology conference back in April. Um, so why did you become a haematologist? That was your, so I believe you... I fell into haematology. <laughs> yeah, you kind of, you came back into medicine as a haematologist. So what was the reason for that? Um, well, I, I stopped for four years and then I came back mm-hmm. and I wanted to do paediatrics. Okay. I did a year of paediatrics, got my membership, but felt that it was very general and that my brain was better working on a specialised smaller area. Mm-hmm. And I was... You can tell it was decades ago, offered a job in haematology. So I thought I'd try it and discovered I loved it. I still remember the professor's face when after six months I said, I think I'm going to stay and be a haematologist. And he said, I thought that was why we'd appointed you. <laughs> so you thought, he thought you were going to move on? How no, he thought I was going to stay in haematology, mm-hmm. whereas I thought I'd try it and yeah. see. Okay, interesting. What is it about blood disorders that interested you to make you want to stay then? I love the fact that you deal with real patients, mm-hmm. but you also get to see it down the microscope and to do the tests and interpret them so you can see what's going on. And that mix of science and patients mm-hmm. and seeing it in real time, very special. Yeah, I agree, definitely. And do you still try and keep up to date with haematology at all? I know you're probably I a very busy person. for a while, but <laughs> I have to say I'm not up to date now. No. Um, I last saw patients in 2006. I miss it, but mm-hmm. you can't do everything. Did you manage to see anything while you were at the haematology conference? A little, but not much. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about your personal experience with blood cancers, if that's okay. Um, so your husband um, in the early 80s was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia, yep. CML. Um, and I wanted, um, talking as, as we're a support charity, I wanted to talk a bit about support services for patients and whether you felt as some, a family member of someone with leukemia at the time, whether you felt there was any services available to patients and their families at the time. Well, they weren't really then. I think they have improved. Um, and actually, the support I needed was from family and friends, social support. Mm-hmm. Until the end, we took him home to die. and He was at home for the last 10 days. And then the GP and social services were fantastic. Though I do also remember a friend of mine who was senior registrar appearing with the platelets to give to him and things like that to keep him comfortable. Mm-hmm. So we all kind of mucked in. I think the big issue that I remember then, and I think is still there, is the fact that we don't, as a society, talk about death. And so it's a really difficult subject when you know someone's yeah. dying or they've died and you're ostracised because of that, because they don't know how to talk about it. And it was very touching at the time when we decided he was going to come home. Um, he said that people stopped going into his room and chatting to him because he was neutropenic, so he was in the side ward. Yeah. And he was quite 
separated and isolated, and he found that quite painful, but he's mm. noticed what was going on. Yeah. So going back to this issue about talking about death, so there's now a, a whole campaign, Dying Matters Week and things like that. Do you think that's having any impact, or do you still think it's a... Too little. I yeah. think that's much more focused on how you die rather than the fact we are all going to die. And the big issue is how do we achieve dignity in dying and make it part of normal life again? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And did the, it, your personal experience with, with that have any impact on your professional work as a haematologist? So I heard um, a breast cancer surgeon who was diagnosed with breast cancer subsequently herself say, I didn't. Know, I thought I knew what it was like for patients until I had direct no. experience myself and realised I didn't. Did, did that happen to you? Do you yes. relate to that experience at all? Yes, I don't like being on the wrong side of medicine, as I call it, mm. and you do learn things. Um, I still remember the distress from a nosebleed. As a doctor, you look and think, a nosebleed, oh, let's pack it, it's not that bad. But actually, massive distress. So I learned all sorts of things. Yes. Yeah. Made me a much better doctor. Well, that's good. And CML treatment's kind of gone, come such a long way, especially in the last 10 years or so. But there are still some patients for whom that doesn't work, unfortunately. Do you have anything, you know, advice or words that you could say to those people and their families from your personal experience? Well, you have to live through it and die with it, don't you? But, I mean, it is for most people. I mean, when Philip had it, there weren't interferons, there wasn't the modern personalised therapies or anything. So it, it, it's dramatically changed. But if, if your disease doesn't or no longer responds, then you've got to find the way to live as well as you can until nature takes its course. Yeah. It is encouraging people to see that time as not only a negative that, that would yes. that be yes i think that's about how do you live it mm. um rather than waiting for the or fighting when it's a lost battle mm. that's not a great metaphor is it no. i'm fighting yeah and you're going to lose why go there why not learn to live with it and do things with it and go out and, and do your bucket list yeah yeah, it's nice to have a positive outlook on that kind of thing. Um, so we've recently, um, the last couple of years, started a spot leukemia campaign to try and encourage people to, both the public and GPs, to learn more about the signs and symptoms of leukemia. Do you remember what those signs and symptoms were of when Philip first became ill at all? Um, for him, he noticed the bulk in his abdomen, which was the large spleen, because mm -hmm. the ML. Of course, for most, it's either the petechiae, the little spots from the bleeding, or actually a nosebleed, or lots of infections, or tiredness from the anemia. So it's yeah. very varied, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we've based this campaign um, on evidence from our own really large survey, but also from um, data that shows leukemia patients are some of the worst affected in terms of um, being diagnosed through A&E. Um, so, and I've I've heard you speak many times on various other podcasts and, and things about the importance of making these sorts of things based in evidence. So it, does it please you to hear that our campaign is, you know, based on evidence in that way? Absolutely. We should only do <laughs> campaigns and spend public money, whether it's 
tins rattling like you do or taxpayers' money when we know who we're trying to aim at, what they think and how best to do it. Mm -hmm. And these public health campaigns can be very important. I'm horrified if we're not diagnosing them well through A&E because all you need is a blood count and there you are. Yeah. Hits you in the face. Lymphomas can be a bit more difficult. Yes. Hey, that's bad news. We we need to do better. Great. I'm glad you support it. Um, We sometimes get told that the spot leukemia campaign may not have an impact because it's such a rare form of cancer in comparison to things like breast cancer and lung cancer. But I see it as we're trying to teach people to not necessarily spot the individual symptoms, but to recognise when there's a change in how they feel. Do, do, do you think that's a good way of putting a message across to just teach people is. to learn a bit more about their bodies? I mean, to be more body aware. I, I still remember that patients, when their platelet counts dropped, whether it was leukemia or mm-hmm. ITP, could tell me. They'd walk in and say, my platelets are low. And mm. to start with, I poo-pooed and said, how do you know? Let's check. And then I began to realize they did know. I don't know how they felt, but they knew once they got used to it. So if people are aware of their bodies, they sh- they will you know, present earlier and get better treatments. Yeah. And we're also trying to, say targets, probably not the word, trying to um, get more GPs to uh, learn more about the signs and symptoms of blood cancers through online training and in-person training. But we've had a little bit of backlash recently about uh, the fact that GP numbers are low and they've got a lot of things on their plate at the moment. Do you have any words to those GPs as, as to why blood cancer is important still? Very difficult for <laughs> GPs at the moment. Definitely. An ageing population, a growing population, and, and so much that they have to do. So they have my sympathies and support. But actually a blood count will sort it. So if they're worried, they need to do a blood count. And that's what I'd say. Don't. Don't worry, just do a blood count. Yeah. Let the haematologist give you advice. Exactly. I totally agree. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the rest of your career, if that's okay. Um, Particularly the family of the National Institute of Health Research. Um, Why why did that come about? Why was that a necessary thing for you to do? Well, what, what we had when I set up the National Institute for Health Research, NIHR, in 2006, was a modest amount of money going to a few teaching hospitals, and no one really knew what it was spent on. And it seemed to me that we needed to be able to let anyone compete to get the money for the trials, that patients, wherever they were in the country, had a right to join in those trials and clinicians. They didn't have to just be in a a certain teaching hospital to be allowed to do it or to lead it. and we needed to help that and also that life had moved on and that clinical trials now need clinical trials units they need lots of expertise that we as clinicians don't have by training in general some do because they don't do phds or something and so we needed to put in place a system where you had the networks to help get patients into studies you had the money You had the support from clinical trials units. You had experimental medicines, so places could try out new drugs and see how they worked. And that needed a system, a research system. So that's what NIHR is. And I'm very proud of what people have done with it. Yeah. So it sounds as if it was based in ensuring fairness for access to research for everyone. Fairness, 
equity, relevance to patients. And I mean, you know, when I first became Director General for Research, it was about £500 million going to hospitals. By the time I stopped in 2016, it was one and a quarter billion being spent competitively. Mm. So the best things got funded. And the best are not just scientists say they're the best. Yeah. Patients have said, yes, it matters. Yes, the endpoints are the right endpoints as well. So we really do an expert review that involves patients, managers, public, nurses, everyone. That's good to hear because we're always pushing for patients to be involved earlier and earlier yes. in the research process. We're Absolutely. not a research charity, but I think we have a responsibility as a support charity so to support yes. people to get involved no. earlier. Absolutely. Definitely. We're very keen on that. In fact, we lead the world on it. NIHR is the best in the world for patient and public involvement. Great. It's good news. What made you want to get into research after being a clinician? Well, <laughs> everything I've done has been fairly seamless. Yeah. So I was a clinician. I am a clinician. I just don't see patients. Yeah. But uh, I was a clinician and then I was asked to sit on a research committee. So I did that alongside. Then I was asked to chair it. I did that alongside. Mm -hmm. Then I was asked to be a post that no longer exists, regional director of research. And I did that half time and clinician half time. So I kind of slid one against the other until I became full time. But yeah. it was not a jump. It was a, a sliding into it and getting caught up in it because I discovered I was good strategically, good at making things happen. And I felt that I could make a bigger difference for patients doing this, setting up NIHR, being CMO, mm. than I could as an in, a clinician of individual patients. That's interesting. Sometimes people say, oh, I prefer to be at the front line. I miss it, but I want to make a difference. Mm. I can make a difference to populations now. Yeah, on a wider scale. That makes sense. Um, you've also been working in the civil service now for quite some time I think you've already answered this but do you miss the meeting patients yeah face -to -face? I do miss patients I, uh, I went into medicine because I enjoyed working with people mm -hmm. um, and in fact it's really nice some of my patients still email me occasionally saw you in the newspaper or on the television or <laughs> I'm proud or occasionally for advice, but I usually have to find someone else to give them the advice now. Mm. But yes, I miss it, but I enjoy what I do. That's good. Well, coming on to what you do now, um, so you're the first female chief medical officer, which must be a really, really proud achievement of yours. But what's your highlight from your time as chief medical officer now it's coming to the end, do you think? So I've done NIHR, we've talked mm -hmm. about. I suppose I'd have to choose... Um, the work on antimicrobial resistance, AMR, mm -hmm. um, because when I started talking about it in 2013, people were saying, what's that? Why are you talking about it? And now we've got the whole world saying, what's that? Why are you yeah. talking about it? And we've dropped our antibiotic use in this country by 13% in general practice. We've dropped it by 40% in animals over the last four years. You know, we are having an impact. And that means then that there will be, if we go on improving it, antibiotics available for leukemia patients who need them, for patients who have transplants. It's not yeah. that I don't want antibiotics and other anti-infectives to be used. I want them to be effective yeah. and be available when they're needed. Exactly. So that's why you're... 
that's why it's relevant to hematology patients. Absolutely, because if we don't get on top of this, we will lose modern medicine and leukemia treatment and transplants will become impossible. And if you go, say, to Italy, they've always got a couple of transplant units closed for deep cleaning because they can't guarantee patients are safe. And I was told last week um, that cancer patients coming into a hospital in Chennai, 30% already are carrying bacteria that are multiply resistant um, in their guts. That's what will give them sepsis when they're treated. I mean, what a difficult discussion. Yeah. Yeah. It must be difficult to say, we want to give you something that might save your life, but at the same time... It'll give you an infection and we're not sure we can treat your infection. Yeah. Hey, which do you want? Yeah. Can imagine that. And you were invited to speak at the British Society of Hematology Conference back in April and you delivered this message. Why did you feel... You know, wanted to accept that that invitation. Did did you feel antibiotic resistance was a particularly important topic for hematology? So it was a lifetime achievement award, yes. and I was honoured and not a bit <laughs> flattered that my own tribe hematologists had chosen to recognise me. When after all, I haven't done hematology since two thousand and six, so I came because of that. But also, the message is very important. Antimicrobial resistance matters in hematology. I'm a sickle cell doctor. Think about salmonella in sickle cell. So it's broader than just the leukemia. It's a big issue. I totally agree. In in your work as the the CMO, how have you dealt with bridging the gap between this is what the science says and this is what people want to do politically? How do you bridge (laughs) that gap? Well, most of the time it is bridgeable, but I don't any longer talk about evidence-based policy. Mm -hmm. I talk about Mm evidence-informed because the politicians are elected democratically. They have rights and they have a different type of knowledge and understanding. And you don't, we have to respect it. Yeah. Um, So we can only advise them. In general, we find an accommodation. One of the Difficult ones was um, Ebola in 1314 when they wanted to put in screening of people coming in from West Africa at airports to catch anyone who had a high temperature. And we said, but it's not cost effective. But when we talked it through, what we found out was they recognized that, but they wanted to show the public they really were doing everything they possibly could. It was public reassurance. And I said, okay, public reassurance, that's the bill. Are you prepared to pay it? They said, yes. I said, then fine. Yeah. We'll do it. I didn't have a problem. There were people who went on saying, why are they doing it? It's not cost effective. But it was their right to decide how to reassure the public and how to spend the money. Yeah. And how have you dealt with criticisms about some of your decisions and (laughs) (laughs) and some of your announcements? So we could talk about how you... The chief nanny, the nat- chief nanny thing, but not just that. Just of some of the things you say, you you're a figurehead for antimicrobial resistance, uh, and and things that some people are like. Oh, we don't want to stop using antibiotics because people might die. That sort of thing. There's lots of things that you know you've yeah. well, said that why. could be controversial, even if they shouldn't be. How have you dealt with that kind of? That's why I decided when I started to to make sure everything I did was as evidence-based as possible. So people can disagree, 
But if I know I'm evidence-based, I just continue and try not to notice or to let it hurt me. Mm -hmm. And if it's a judgment, then I will have talked to the people who are good around the country and taken advice, and I will, again, have to try and live with it. If someone could come up with some different evidence, then we can shift. Yes, I totally agree with that. We might as well stick to what the evidence says, even if we don't like it. I think that's, that's a human trait, isn't it? You, yeah. The evidence says one thing, but our hearts might say something else. Yeah. And understanding that tension and working with it is part of it. Yes, definitely. And you've recent, well, you're moving on after being Chief Medical Officer to be the first female Master of Trinity College. So you've been the first female at a, lot, a couple of different things now. Is it important to you to be that figurehead? Mm. Um, I have seeking uh, to be <laughs> the first woman doing things. It's just part of my generation. Mm. I mean, your generation are young and we will have cracked these glass ceilings and I hope you'll have a more equal, easy time. I'm not sure you will, but I really hope you do. Mm. Um, But for me, it's about doing jobs I'm interested in, I want to do. Um, And I think it's a pity I'm the first woman, but hey, if that's what it takes, I'm going to do it. And what about becoming a dame? Was that top of your achievement? (laughs) <laughs> uh, no, uh, being a dame is lovely because it shows recognition mm. uh, for a job well done. It was for NIHR actually yeah. in changing the research system. Um, but no, um, much more satisfying is doing things you believe matter. Yeah, although you were given the, the damehood for doing something, I don't know. Yes, that change people's matters. Yes, that's the pleasure. Yes, I, I'm definitely. not decrying it. It is lovely <laughs> to be a dame, and I'm, I'm yeah. again, I'm honoured. Mm-hmm. I'm honoured by the monarch and the country. But what matters is making the difference. I totally agree. We would like to thank Professor Dame Sally Davis and her team at the Department of Health and Social Care for her help in creating this podcast. And also thanks to Professor Davis for sharing her personal experiences of leukemia. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk, or call our helpline 08088 010 444. See you next month.